Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The home of luxury beliefs. I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, Labour's conference in Liverpool is underway and they seem in a pretty buoyant mood. Is this a party on the brink of government with actual policies to share with us all? And Hamas's unprecedented attack on Israel over the weekend has already led to hundreds of deaths in Israel and Gaza as Benjamin Netanyahu declares war. How can the region possibly pull back from this and how does the rest of the world respond? Let's meet the only three people I know who aren't currently wearing a lanyard in Liverpool. Alex Andreu, you've also been snubbed, uh, is an actor and commentator. Hello, Alex. How do you know I'm not the snubber rather than the snubby? Just, oh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't snub conference. You'd love it. Uh, Servation polling has shown that among newspaper readers, only those reading the mail are more likely to vote Tory than Labour, and even then only by a small margin. Even a plurality of readers of The Express and Telegraph say they favour Labour. Are editors speaking for their proprietors rather than their readers at this point? Um, or maybe they always do to a certain extent, and it just becomes noticeable when their readers start leaning the opposite way, uh, or maybe their influence is waning. So where previously they would have been able to convince the readers to go in a particular direction after years of headlines and and uh, editorials, maybe they can't. Anymore. Uh, are, are people unpersuaded by Alastair Heath's? <laughs> fiery uh, Pl- polemics. Pl- plainly, because the Telegraph actually had quite a wide uh, scissor of, mm. of uh, difference of opinion. But then again, I don't understand why do people then read the Telegraph if they, maybe they like disagreeing. I don't know. Well, apparently one, like one in five uh, Guardian readers plan to vote Tory. So again, yeah. I don't know. I always just assume it's the sports pages, you know. I mean, I understand Guardian readers wanting to vote Tory um, because the Guardian is pretty down on Labour all the time. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're Corbynites, aren't they? Going to go vote Tory. I was surprised, um, even more surprised, having for a while, that the Times under Tony Gallagher uh, has taken a marked turn to the right, you know, when a political sea change is is imminent. Um, Now, the Times more than, say, the Telegraph or the mail, seems to have some flexibility in where it can turn. Do you expect a tactical shift from some papers uh, come election time? Maybe. You see, I don't know that I have seen that shift necessarily from the Times. There has certainly been a sustained period where I've been surprised at how on message their front page is. I will agree with that. Okay, so I should say at this point uh, that our guest this week is a columnist and leader writer for The Times, a Saturday presenter on Times Radio and a mainstay of Radio 4's news quiz, Hugo Rifkin. Hello, Hugo. Hello. So, (laughs) has has The Times uh, taken a more conservative tack in recent years, or am I imagining that? A bit of both, probably. I mean, we've had a new editor this year who has views that are are different in some ways from the old editor, and the editorial line will reflect the editor because that's what an editorial line does. Um, But I also think, I mean, I saw that poll as well. It's fascinating, you know, about the way different readers of different papers are likely to vote. Newspapers are not only concerned with the people who currently read them. They're also concerned with the people who they want to read them. All newspapers are positioning for the sort of slightly, perhaps slightly mythical notion of the people who could be newspaper readers who don't currently buy newspapers. Probably they're not on the left. Probably they're not even on the liberal left. So I'm sure there's a commercial imperative from all newspapers to get the quite lucrative sort of pensioner market. That said, from from the Times, you know, I mean, I, my column has not shifted to the right. Nobody meddles with my column. Mm. There are plenty of um, plenty of columnists. Perhaps not most columnists these days, but uh, certainly plenty of columnists who are not on the right. So, I mean, I think it's um, it remains quite a broad church, but I think it's part of the nature of being kind of near the middle that when you deviate in either direction, it's very noticeable. 
It seems like uh, a long time ago now, but Labour outperformed predictions by a mile in the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election last week. It was a swing of 24.1%, gave them a mammoth 31-point lead over the SNP, and the Tory candidate lost his deposit with barely 1,000 votes. Turnout was low, which some people have been pouncing on, um, but this can't be downplayed, can it? Even just as a by-election no, I mean, it can't. It, but it's um, it sort of doesn't I mean, look, it always matters that turnout is low. But I don't think we should hide behind turnout is low, but it won't be in the election. It might be in the election as well. What you've got going on in Scotland, particularly that part of Scotland, is since the referendum 2014, you've basically had this great usurping of, of Red Clydeside going from Labour to the SNP, right? Um, and there is some suggestion it might begin to shift back. Mm. And if it does that for Labour, that's, I mean, that's enormous. Very strange and different things have happened in Scottish politics since the referendum. The parts of Scotland that still vote Tory are much more Tory than they used to be and much more Tory than their equivalent parts down south. Um, But also a lot of the Labour and indeed Tory vote is an anti-SNP vote. And so people will vote the anti-SNP way. So I know lifelong conservatives in Edinburgh who now vote Labour because they're voting against the SNP. And I know lifelong Labour people in more rural seats who will now vote Conservative because they're also voting against the the SNP. Because obviously SNP has had a torrid time of it for the reasons that Margaret Ferrier was forced out in the first place, breaking COVID rules, um, scandals around Nicholas Sturgeon. But it's been suggested that actually some SNP voters are willing to vote Labour because they want to get the Tories out and that that's more important than independence because there isn't a referendum on the horizon. Do you think that's a factor, that it's not just S&P voters staying at home, but some are thinking, do you know what, we would rather change the government in Westminster? Well, I mean, that's probably true, although why that's not always been true. I mean, a a referendum hasn't really been on the horizon since the last referendum, uh, but the SNP has been sort of good at pretending there is constantly a referendum on the horizon. Also, look, the SNP has sort of fallen apart on a leadership level. It doesn't get much more embarrassing than an an illicit camper van, right? (laughs) It also doesn't look great on a level of we're a completely different thing with a completely different political tradition to the corrupt Tories down south. Um, And so I'd imagine there's a huge amount of disillusionment around there. I mean, um, I, I would point to the Tories down south in the last three years and say it does get a lot more embarrassing than an illicit camper van. Just because they're better at it doesn't mean they're not essentially doing the same thing. Hannah Fern is a columnist and reporter focused on social affairs. Hi, Hannah. Hi. Uh, now, Labour's is not the only conference around this week. The Green Party has gathered in Brighton. Um, what news from there? Well, it's interesting. They're really going full tilt towards general election. They have committed to a full list of candidates and they've got four seats really strongly in their sights. Obviously, they want to hold on to Brighton Pavilion with Lucas stepping down. But they are also looking at Bristol Central and Waveney Valley specifically, which are both new under the boundary shakeup to watch. I actually think that there are some other seats, particularly in London, that they might do very well at. Whether They won't win, but they will be a very good um, second candidate. Uh, where I used to live, actually, Dulwich and West Norwood, they're already in second place. So it will be an interesting um, election for them. And they, as part of this, I guess, push to be a bit more visible. They are clear there's going to be no kind of pre-election electoral pact. Um, no surprise. And probably not that disappointing for Labour, really. The Greens will talk about this all the time because they want to make themselves more significant uh, in terms of the maths when they're never going to be. But it is an interesting time to be watching them, um, particularly on their policies. They 
unsurprisingly, are still committed to full ownership of public services. But they're also talking about radical things at conference like the four day working week, which is obviously something that um, knocks around in the, the kind of liberal left discussions a lot. So interesting to see if it shapes the debate at conference this week for Labour. And let's not forget Nigel Farage's Reform UK, which met in (laughs) London. Um, Farage accused the Tories of copying reforms policies. Is this the first time we're going to have to agree with Nigel Farage? (laughs) He's not wrong, is he? So he was using this comparison to hit out uh, the Tories. He wanted to label them a high-tax party, a big state party. Um, But actually what he's obviously ended up doing is highlighting for the rest of us how aligned the social values of those two parties have become, um, for obviously far for the worse for, for the Tory party. And they're planning to run in every seat, apparently, which is, mm. again, good news for Labour. It is, definitely. Uh, definitely splits the argument, particularly for those Tories on the right who are very upset by the tax situation. Actually, Farage might win some votes on that issue. So definitely good for Labour. It's Labour's turn for a big old get-together as they hold what might be their last conference before the next general election, although a May election is looking increasingly unlikely. The Conservatives' conference was dramatic to say the least, and Labour may simply see being less chaotic as a win. But they have some big policies too. Starmer's watchwords are reassurance and hope. Has he got the balance right? Our managing editor, Jacob Jarvis, is in Liverpool right now to speak to some of the conference-goers. Recent Oh God, What Now guest, Barry Gardner MP, that is of course the top Top thing on his uh, LinkedIn. (laughs) Labour MP for Warrington North, Charlotte Nichols, And in a rare scoop for this podcast, elusive Best of Britain CEO, Naomi Smith. Hello, I'm Jacob Jarvis, and I'm delighted to be joined by a friend of the podcast, Barry Gardner MP is here with me today. Barry, how are you? How's your day been so far? It's great. Life is is rich. We obviously want to talk about what's happening at Labour Conference, but I would be loath not to ask you a little bit about the, the shambles we saw last week at the Conservative Party Conference. Yeah, look, it was Napoleon who said, uh, never interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake. So our purpose at this conference is to focus on people out there and the things that matter to them and to show that we've got the answers. Does this feel markedly different to you know, any conference in your, in your recent memory? It feels like a, different, a wholly different vibe to me here than, than previous years. I, I'm not sure it's wholly different um, because we've had positive, you know, really positive conferences. Look, this conference, it's really important that we are united in what we're doing and we show that we've got a vision for the, the British public that brings people together around the things that are really important to them. When it comes to, you know, dividing lines, though, the, one of the questions with Labour is sort of, what is it standing for? Let me name two things that Angela referenced in her speech. She talked about fire and rehire. Employment rights, treating people fairly, is at the heart of what Labour is about, and it's the heart of what Labour should be about. The other thing uh, that she mentioned in her speech is about leasehold reform. We've got literally millions of British people trapped in their own homes. EWS1 forms, fire safety defects, can't sell, can't move on with their lives. These are the things that really concern people out there. And it's fantastic that right here at the start of Labour Conference, these are things that Angela put front and centre. 
I mean, the, the economy and business is a, a big focus here at this conference. It's a hard thing when it comes to the economy, though, is that how can you plan to have that amount of detail when you just don't know what will be in place there? Look, it, it, it's a fair question. We've got to be cautious, but caution means you don't over-promise, but what you do is you plan now for the delivery that you want to do. And, of course, what we need is the most transformative plan for our economy that anybody has been ever forced to have, and that is a completely new green infrastructure in this country. So we've got to plan so that when we come into government, we're ready to deliver that as best we can be, and then we sit down with the civil servants and they tell us, actually, these are the counters that are on the table and these are the chips that have been taken off. Is it hard to communicate two messages in some ways where we're going to have to explain to some people that you can't let perfection be the enemy of the good? But then on things like climate and green issues, we need to be pretty damn close to perfect. Look, we need to be on a war footing when it comes to the green infrastructure and the green transformation that we need for our economy. It's about mobilising our economy in a way that we haven't done for 80 years. And we have to impress on the public that what we're faced with is a war against the climate, whereby if we don't win this war, we will lose jobs and our economy will fail. When Keir Starmer gets up to address the, the crowds uh, tomorrow... What's the dream scenario of what he says for you? What do you really want to make sure he's got front and centre there? Oh, listen, he's got much better people than me advising him as to what to say on Tuesday. Um, you know, I'm sure he will give a message that tries to unite the public around a vision of what our society can be. Ultimately, what is really important is that Keir stands there and people look at him and they say, yeah. I can see that guy as Prime Minister. So I'm here with Charlotte Nichols, the MP for Warrington North. Charlotte, how's it going? How's your conference been so far? It's been really good. The vibe, the tenor, the tone, immaculate. In terms of the shape of policy we've heard so far, what's given you hope? What have you been excited to hear about? I think the really interesting things so far have been what Ed Miliband has announced around energy security and a much more sensible approach from Labour versus what we've seen over the last decade or so about making sure that we've got something that is secure, that people can feel comfortable investing in and that helps us actually reach net zero, which is, of course, the biggest crisis facing the world at the moment. Now, a little bit of a thought experiment. Imagine I'm an undecided voter. I don't know which way to go. What would you say to me in terms of why I should vote for Labour at the next general election? Well, I don't think it's enough for people to vote Labour just based on what we're not. And it's very easy to ask people and say, you know, what in your life is working better than 13 years ago? But I think this is why that message of vision from this conference is going to be so important, because we need to spell out to people not just what we're not, but who we are and what we're planning to do. I'm hopeful that a lot of the things that are getting discussed both in the fringes and on conference floor is going to help us really sell that overarching vision to people rather than just talking about individual bits and pieces of policy and you know individual initiatives and so on. Charlotte, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
I'm with fan favourite, gone but not forgotten, Naomi Smith of Best for Britain. Naomi, how's it going? Hi, Joe. Really good to see you. For you, the conference, how's it going? What's the vibe like? And yeah, how have you been finding it? Um, for us, it's going incredibly well. We've got two really big exhibition spaces. We've been having fringes. Tonight, we've got an event with the Kebab Awards, the great annual event of... The political calendar is normally in London. We've brought the Kebab Awards here to Liverpool, so it's going really well. It is a very different conference to recent years. I think there was over 16,000 delegates. The exhibition area is about twice the size of normal. The number of fringes has practically doubled. It all feels very upbeat, of course, coming fresh off the heels of a pretty stunning victory in Rutherglen last week. When you're speaking to people around the conference, what are, they, what are they asking you? What do their priorities seem to be? What is everyone wanting when they talk to you about the events of conference? They want to win. They haven't felt like this for a really long time, and the members are certainly in that space of feeling like they're on the cusp of victory. Um, so discipline feels much higher. Even those that are sort of maybe less enthusiastic about Starmer's leadership know that there's no point in rocking the boat now when they're this close to getting the keys to number 10. What are your priorities while you're here? What's, what are you pushing to people when you're speaking to them? So our big push this year is around Brexit, getting that much closer relationship with Europe. So David Lammy's speech this morning talked a lot about that, the need to forget this little islander mentality that we actually do need to work with, not against Europe, and have a far better relationship than the one that Johnson negotiated for us. So that's what we're doing. We've got these major policy areas that we're pushing Labour on, that alignment with the EU on regulations, independent board of trade, making sure that business has its voice. And thirdly, let's try and restore some level of freedom of movement for the young. Naomi, we miss you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. Miss you all too. Alex, the Rutherglen win points to a serious Labour revival in Scotland, as we said, which the party had allegedly lost forever not so long ago, as uh, SNB supporters on Twitter often told me. The Tory conference hasn't shifted the polls. So is the mood still cautious or are Labour in danger of breaking into a strut? No, I, I mean, I, I, I think the ghost of Kinnock 92 uh, continues and will continue to haunt Labour nightmares for a long time, as well it should. So I don't think they're going to break into a swagger, and I don't think it will be an easy election. Um, Sunak today did one big press conference in the morning uh, to overlap with David Lammy's keynote speech and then did a, a sort of midday radio show for two hours to overlap with Rachel Reeves. And that is a major no-no in terms of political convention. Um, they don't tend to step on um, the other party's conference. And I think if you take that and add it to the, the conference last week where they were just making shit up, I think it augurs a really, really dirty election ahead. It says to me, forget conventions, forget acceptable minimum standards. We're going to fight from the gutter. Well, Tories concentrated on cancelling policies that didn't exist, like <laughs> the meat tax, yeah. the, the Judge Dredd version of 15-minute cities. Uh, <laughs> do, do, does Labour's offering already feel more positive and reality-based? It does. It feels more positive. <clears throat> it feels more future-focused. The, the atmosphere at their conferences 
is just completely different. It has the, the endorsement of major players like British Chamber of Commerce, the Federation of Small Businesses, and it feels to revolve much more around values, which in my view makes the Labour offering feel grand in scale, while Rishi Sunak spending his speech talking about potholes make his offering feel superficial and tiny and not of the scale that's necessary to deal with what's going on in the country. So I think they've got it right. Uh, what did you get out of Rachel Reeves's speech? It was a good speech. She was clearly relieved. It went down well. It got a big standing ovation in the room. If you cast your mind back to 1996, the big announcements that Blair and uh, Brown were making at this point were a lot of cost-neutral policies, as they used to call them. So things that cost nothing but made a big statement. So I saw quite a lot of that, like announcing a fraud commissioner that will claw back money from PPE fraud. I mean, it costs nothing. It might even bring a little money in. It's hugely popular. It draws voters' minds back to precisely the sort of incompetence and mismanagement that Labour allege. No downsides, more please. They're not going to go down to a granular level and announce policy after policy after policy because... Either they will be told that's not enough, what you're doing is not enough, or they will be told, how are you paying for it? It's it's one or the other. It's all downside. So uh, I think they're giving themselves the space to do stuff. Um, Hannah, Starmer has said now the party wouldn't retain the Rwanda plan, would reinstate the 2030 date for ending the sale of new petrol cars. We've complained quite a lot about Labour refusing to commit to reversing uh, Sunak policies. So this was quite pleasing, right? Very pleasing. I can't tell you how relieved I was to hear this. We've spent a lot of time on this podcast as well complaining about the things that Starmer hasn't said he would (laughs) um, commit to reversing or has indeed agreed to continue where we disagree Mm. with it. So it did two things, I think. It first of all obviously put this clear line between Labour and the Tories on, on the policy, but it also unashamedly made a very moral case for something. That's really important too. Voters need to know what they're standing for, the values that they're that you know that they, they want reflected. Labour have been quite bad at that. I remember Yvette Cooper's response to Suella Braverman's speech, and it was always like it was also like, oh, incompetent, not tough enough. And it was like, hang on, this is a speech from the you know radical right Mm. and you appear to have no moral objection to anything that she's saying absolutely to hear strong clarity i suppose on on what it is that labor stands for around migration is really really helpful and and it it marks them out as different and i think there are a large number of tory voters have been so disappointed to see um the callousness with which this human issue has been handled so thank goodness for finding the strength to speak of it as it is at a fringe event, Angela Rayner was described as a secret weapon for Labour by pollster James Johnson. I don't know how secret she is. She's on, <laughs> she's on telly a lot. It's quite visible. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> how is she faring in her new role on housing and levelling up? Oh, I think the reason that she's a secret weapon, by the way, is that she's mm. incredibly relatable to women. And there's some really compelling research from King's College London about how the, the female vote is more influential than it ever has been before. And it's been with it's ahead with Labour for the very first time. But uh, how is she doing? Well... She did this big speech in which she made a massive promise on development numbers and commitment to social housing, which is very, very welcome. People have been waiting for these figures. She talked about 1.5 million new homes, which is, I think, a pretty decent pledge. Mm. And most importantly, she does appear to have the whole housing sector on board. So it will be mostly housing associations that end up delivering 
private developers are in a total mess. So the fact that she grew up in a council house and talks about her background, um, I think is also useful for her in terms of her success in this role because she genuinely believes in a parity of esteem between council housing, private rented housing, ownership and so on. And on levelling up, she's probably been the most successful critic of the government on their policy. And she talked in her speech at a conference about giving local government more freedoms. So it seemed the package seems to be there. I do think one bit that hit a bit of a bum note for me was she really attacked private developers. And there's no, you know, getting away from the fact that they have not built the numbers we were expecting and that the country needs. But to be honest, the government has got to put up the funding and the, and the incentives to make house building happen. So attacking developers isn't really enough so we'll see hugo we've done uh reeves and rayner mm. what about little keir starmer um a more in common word cloud showed that people think that he mainly stands for nothing which is better than sunak's keyword rich um but not great now i have read far far too many pieces going what does keir starmer stand for when will he step forward perhaps i've even said those words myself why is this still the sort of abiding perception of him. Like, who is this guy? What does he want? Well, look, it's partly because he's a very boring man. It's also deliberate. <laughs> I'm team nothing. Nothing is great. Okay, you look at what's been happening for the last few years. Give me a bit of nothing. You know, pump some nothing into my veins. That's fine. <laughs> uh, he, but this is this is deliberate, right? Um, I was very interested to hear you talking about, you know, the value of Labour to make the moral case. They don't want to make the moral case. They don't want to do what Hillary Clinton did when she talked about the basket of deplorables. Mm. They don't want to put people off. Their whole pitch is that we are going to be a better managerial government than the existing government. Now, people talk a lot at the moment. There's something I've been writing about today. Let's see if it makes sense. I think it did written down. Um, this is a, <laughs> you decide, uh, listeners. <laughs> you decide. Well, it'll be, it'll be published by then. It'll be too late. But uh, people talk a lot about the parallels with, uh, with 1997. If you compare where Starmer is now to where Blair was in 1996, of course he's less exciting. But that's because Britain's less exciting. Even to make it as basic as as, as things can only get better, the idea of, of a Tory leader coming on stage to something that had been a sort of ecstasy club anthem that then moved, you know, it was just, it was yeah. nonsense. You know, even even 10 years later, Michael Howard was coming on stage to Elvis, for God's sake. You know, they, they, <laughs> they, they did not have that, that sort of inroad into the psyche of Britain. And you've got to think, by the time of 1997, Cool Britannia had happened, Britpop had happened, the economy had been recovering for about five years, there was this whole wave of social change that Blair could just sit on and ride up to the top. Starmer hasn't got that. No one's going to say a new dawn has come. We're not in the dawn game at the moment. We're in sort of better management around mm, about mm. midnight, okay? And that's kind of that's kind of what they're going it's for. It's more like, oh, rain's let up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> you know, but so the last thing he wants to do right now is, is be incredibly interesting, which is fortunate because he isn't. He is. As they, as they say euphemistically in the profiles, he's a very private man. <laughs> yes, with a lot to be private about. <laughs> um, we haven't had his big speech yet. You must have covered quite a few of these in your time. What do you think he has to nail? I mean, I imagine he's going to hit the Tories again and again on incompetence mm. and aloofness will be the thing. But I mean, look, I mean, I'm sure most of you have seen Starmer speak in smaller settings. If Starmer's speaking to 30, 40, 50 people, he's actually quite magnetic. Now, that's not, a, that's not a massive skill. Most politicians are. It's why they become politicians. John Major was too. Um, but on a conference speech, what Starmer does have to do 
is if not be inspirational, then at least he has to be personally interesting. Rishi Sunak isn't isn't super at that. Rishi Sunak is an irritating man. Um, uh, you know, I mean, he just is. You know, um, I sneezed at the mention yeah. of his name. <laughs> well, there you go. He, he has hay fever. He has, he, the, the mere words Rishi Sunak went straight into your nostrils and tickled your hairs. You know, um, but so Starmer, I don't think is in danger of being irritating, but he's got to just be a little bit appealing. He's got to show a little bit of sort of flair and insight. What he's not going to do is unveil a blueprint for a new and different Nirvana-type Britain. That's just not going to happen. Well, this this brings me uh, back to you, Alex, because it, it's not just people on the left that you'd expect, like John McDonnell unites Sharon Graham, who demand more radicalism. Um, Blairites Peter Mandelson, Alistair Campbell, and the non-war Blairite Tony Blair um, <laughs> are calling for bolder positions too. The impression I get from what you were saying earlier is that you just think that's not that's not the way to go. Although, I but, mean, but it's really healthy. I mean, that's not the way to go. But it's really healthy. You know, the leader of the biggest union should be trying to pull a centre-left party slightly to the left. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the job. And, you yeah. know, the centrist elements in that party should be resisting that. That That is an incredibly healthy tension that results in good policy or should result in good policy. But but I think one mustn't make the, the mistake of believing where an election is fought is necessarily where a party will govern from, Right. The, the Tories have moved miles to the right at the moment in so many issues. In terms of electoral strategy, it would be criminal incompetence for, for, for Labour not to squat in that empty space that's just sitting there at the moment. And, and actually, if that means they end up with a massive majority, with a really spectacular mandate, it might mean that they can govern more radically than they could by promising loads of radical policies and then getting a three-seat uh, majority, right? This, so, this so, is what some, one of our guests, I think, described as like, can, can they, can they um, campaign in prose and govern in poetry? Well, I mean, yes. You're suggesting they could. I'm, I'm suggesting it is easier to implement stuff when people see you as having broad democratic legitimacy. They're denying the Conservative Party a, a, a chink in their armour that they can stick a blade into and they can wobble. What the Tories want to do in the election, which is not is not disgraceful, it's what parties do in elections, but it's what the Conservatives have always been very good at, is find the thing about the Labour leader and make people frightened of it. Mm. With Jeremy Corbyn, that was very easy. There was a lot to be frightened about. You know, with Ed Miliband, there was less to be frightened about, but he was still portrayed as being much more to the left than he was, mm. and, people, and, and, and people were successfully frightened by that. They haven't got that thing with Keir Starmer. He hasn't given them that thing. He's been very, very careful not to give them that thing. And I think it's quite important for Labour not to give them that thing. Uh, given that, and uh, maybe the, the strategy is not to open up any uh, line of Tory attack. I mean, are there things missing so far for you? I, I was perhaps personally surprised that, um, you know, cost of living has not been mentioned as much as I thought. Uh, inequality, less surprised that they don't want to talk about any culture. Um, cost of living, definitely. There needs to be some kind of sense that they will do it better because they have some ideas, not just because they are saying they will. Um, the other one is inequality of opportunity, which you mentioned, but it's not just uh, about class. It's also geographic, the failure of levelling up, um, general sense of unfairness in this country, which they can really peg to the fact that we obviously have the Boris era. I would, would have expected to hear more about that. You do feel like it must be coming in the big leader's speech. The other thing, which is much of a smaller issue, but it's been really getting 
people talking recently is childcare. Well, obviously, um, the Tories made this massive promise that they can't deliver about 30 hours from nine months, which affects so many families and also grandparents as well who are doing lots of extra childcare at the moment. There's been nothing on that either. And that all comes into cost of living. Mm -hmm. So, yes, maybe that will come up. I hope we don't actually hear anything on the old woke wars. I've really had enough of it. Do you not want them to come out in favour of woke science? <laughs> Starmer did the entire <laughs> conference on why woke science is woke great. Woke science. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. What the fuck Even... is woke science? I mean... Honestly, giving that any time of day at all, I think, is the wrong right. strategy. I'm pleased to see they're silent on that. There's um, the piece I'd recommend, um, it came, I think it came out about a month ago. Um, Harry Lambert in The New Statesman made a very strong argument for, like, you know, wealth taxes and more taxes on capital. And what you say about fairness, I did think, like, I get Rachel Reeves sort of read my lips, no new taxes thing. But it just seems like that's where the country is. Mm. And what the polls and the focus groups and the social attitude surveys say. And it feels like, well, there's some money that you can get from mm. people who are rather unpopular at the moment. Like, why won't you do that but it seems that fairness is not something they want it to talk about in that way to do with that the, the age-old thing that keeps happening it happened in the u.s in the era of trump as well where people think they are wealthier than they are so when they hear these policies they believe it's going to affect them when in fact it will never will so how it's interpreted and how it's reported i think that's the reason for the hesitance from labor on, on matters like that but the other thing we're seeing, for instance, on EU policy, and also um, today with Rachel Reeves' uh, speech on borrowing to invest, borrowing to build infrastructure and things like that. That's good, bit of Keynes. Yeah, um, what we're seeing, I think, is that they have a clear internal um, sort of notion of what direction they want to go to. And then there's a really shrewd assessment of how quickly they move the rhetoric in that um, direction without frightening um, voters away. And I, and I think what you will see is this moving by degrees, moving mm. inch by inch towards where they want to ultimately be. Could they do like one policy per week for, <laughs> for podcasters? <laughs> yes. Uh, Hugo, tell me frightening voters. The conference passed controversial rules changes which limited which motions could be submitted and, and was another one of those things which kind of like neuters the left a bit. I did notice there was a demonstration to restore the whip to Diane Abbott, um, but not much else. So how vocal is the Labour left in Liverpool this week? Well, I'm not there, so I don't directly know. But that being said, uh, <laughs> allowing for that, um, I mean, the, the significant thing about Labour Conference for the last few years is it's been two two conferences, right? Under Corbyn, basically, Momentum always had their own their own conference. The world transformed. That's still going. Now, for a long time, that was a real problem for Labour because it meant all the action was next door. Uh, and I mean, really, it was much more fun there. I went to I went to one of their parties with Jeremy Hardy once. It was amazing. <laughs> um, it was like it was a really good band. And then Jeremy Corbyn gave a speech for forty five minutes, which slightly dampened the mood at eleven thirty. <laughs> but there we go. Um, it as a yeah, rap. Everyone sort of dismally drinking like the dregs of cans of red stripe, going, "Oh God, like, that's like the play dancing in the moonlight." This is like the worst wedding ever. <laughs> but um, so anyway, Corbyn. But ha though. having having my point being having like for a long time had all the action next door that was much more exciting, much more sexy, much more vibrant. They're now in this situation where they've got all the nutters next door, and that's fine. Uh, and I guess they don't really care what happens next door. I think, look, I, I know we're going to talk about Israel later. Mm. The flashpoint you may see, perhaps even by the time people hear this, will have seen at Labour, is what the left does about Palestine. To what extent there are Palestinian scarfs in the auditorium, to what, in what way the party deals with them. That being said, I think the party is going to work very, very hard to make sure it doesn't. 
On Saturday, Hamas's shock attack on southern Israel resulted in the largest single-day loss of Jewish lives since the Holocaust. The death toll is reported to be more than 700. Around 260 people were murdered at the Supernova Dance Music Festival. Up to 100 more Israelis, including small children, have been taken hostage. Israel responded by declaring war on Hamas and launching airstrikes, which have killed a reported 500 Gazans. The future of Israel and Palestine has rarely looked bleaker. Hugo, um, the attack has been compared to both the Yom Kippur War, almost exactly 50 years ago, and to 9-11. Are either of those accurate or useful ways of thinking about this? 9-11 isn't. It's just numbers. <clears throat> the worst terrorist attack that Israel had faced, 9-11 was the worst terrorist attack that the United States has, has faced. And I suppose it brings in a, a, a new era of awfulness. So there's that similarity. Uh, Yom Kippur is very apt because it's about Israel being shaken out of a... I wouldn't quite say a sense of security because Israel never really has had, has or has had a, a sense of security. But it's about this idea. It, it shakes Israel's faith in its own security. It shakes Israel's faith that come what may, the IDF is the major force that can be relied upon in the region that Israeli intelligence is incredibly impressive and flawless. Uh, I mean, the the details of this story that leak out, the, the sort of filtered out more slowly, the attack itself is horrifying and shaking for, for all Israelis, obviously. But there's also the fact that it was allowed to happen, that they could get across the border, the supposedly secure border, and that people were hiding from from terrorists and attackers for six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve hours waiting for the IDF mm -hmm, to turn mm -hmm, up. Mm -hmm. There is a belief in Israel that if you're in trouble, the IDF turns up. You know, you accidentally hitchhike through the yeah. West Bank and you get kidnapped, the IDF turns up. The fact that there were entire communities that were abandoned for a long time um, is is remarkable, is deeply upsetting to Israelis um, and will lead to just, I think, really profound internal political ramifications. I think Netanyahu is sort of dangling by a thread at the moment. He'll last a while because he'll put together a broader national government, which has a lot to do with why, they, why they're already calling it a war. But um, his whole approach, which has always been to slightly marginalise the, um, the, the influence of the massive political bloc that is the army, I mean, that, that cannot continue. Uh, Alex, the Yom Kippur War finished um, Golda Meir, um, who was, uh, you know, accused of of being of being ill prepared and you know allowing Israel to be attacked in that way. Now it's it's hard to sort of read what's going to happen with 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 Netanyahu because some commentators have pointed to the the scandals and indeed the extremism of his government as things that have made Israel look divided, distracted, weak. At the same time, there is a rally round the flag effect when a nation is under attack. So, do you think, as as Hugo suggests, that this could, you know, relatively soon? finish him off? Or could he emerge even stronger as a war leader, which is what he would love to be? So I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, actually. I think a nation can unify while the danger is imminent and real. And then the inquiry into what went wrong begins, and a lot went wrong. Considering the surveillance that goes on, considering the the, the network of informants that, that Shin Bet and Mossad, the equivalents of uh, MI5 and MI6, are meant to be the most sophisticated intelligence agencies in the region. The rest of the West relies on their intelligence in the region. All of it failed. And so... I'm not sure if politically this will be linked in particular to this reform that Netanyahu is doing or that policy, but the general flabbiness of 
him as a leader in the build-up to this, consumed as he is by, by his own internal politics of the coalition, by, by his, his judicial reforms, by his legal troubles around, uh, around corruption. Today, as we record, his reputation as Mr. Security is shredded what it looks like is decadence, right? It looks like political yeah. decadence because what Israel has always put first mm. is security in a way that people in the West often sort of struggle to understand. They don't understand why Israel's not better at playing the PR game. PR game always comes second, you know, always. You can see at the moment, uh, at the moment as we speak, Israel has enormous global sympathy. Within the next few days, Israel will do something that loses a normal global sympathy. That, and that, that happens because Israel cares less about sympathy than it does security. That's what Netanyahu let mm. slip, that fundamental sort of fundamentalist idea of security. The Haaretz journalist Anshel Pfeffer uh, tweeted that it, this is not like Yom Kippur in the sense that that was a war for survival. This was a military invasion that had to be repelled. Whereas here, once the uh, terrorists are sort of cleared out of Israeli territory, there is in theory time to think. That does not necessarily seem to be happening. Israel has already launched airstrikes, I mentioned on alleged Hamas bases, killing many civilians. It's cut off supplies of electricity, fuel, food and water. It's like a total blockade. I mean, you can say, I really want to get away from when people say, well, I think this is unsurprising, or this is inevitable, or this is what you would expect to happen. I don't, I don't, maybe so, but it's not the only thing that could have happened. Is, was there another thing that they could have done rather than what seems like declaring war on not Hamas, but Gaza? Well, I mean, as we speak now uh, on on Monday, uh, with with the with the incursions having been on Saturday, Israel is still fighting over territory in Israel mm. with 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 Hamas militants and terrorists, right? So um, that's a big deal. You know, that's when you think about all the all the resources that uh, that Israel has at its disposal, and you think about Hamas being essentially a bunch of people with AK forty sevens and pickup trucks. The fact that they have not yet cleared them out, yeah. I mean, and that's partly because they have hostages, and there'll be ways in which they do not want to go in and all that kind of stuff. But the presence of the hostages, and we're talking a lot of hostages, hundred hostages, international hostages, hundred and thirty, I think, oh, is the latest. Has it gone out? There, yeah. there, there we go. Um, that doesn't quite give them space to wait and do nothing. Hannah, it's a pull. Back a bit and, and look at the media response. A lot of supporters of Palestinian rights protest that the long-term context um, of the suffering of people in Gaza is not being acknowledged by some news reports and, and most politicians. But does violence on this scale make it very hard to recognise the reasons because otherwise they sound like excuses when you've got like the massacre of civilians? I don't know how, how a sort of Labour front bencher goes you know, but, you know, what we're allowed to say basically here in this room is like, well, there is this sort of, there is this context and the context does not mean excusing anything. But but on the, on the kind of top level political, you know, discourse, is that just an impossible thing to say? Yes, I think it is that exactly as you've described. But I think there's another thing, which is the difficulty of reporting in a short space of time or a political soundbite. 50, 80 years of incredibly complex conflict. It's really hard to translate. Um, and for politicians, it makes it really difficult to capture what the UK's position is on it too. Everything has to be oversimplified, which is something that we have to deal with all the time. Um, and if you think about the recent context of Ukraine, we tend to process everything in the news of, in terms of aggressor and victim. And, you know, how do you use those terms when you're looking at, at this? So. Um, yeah, I think Hugo also touched on how um, 
it, this conflict is touching so many people in the UK very personally, and that's true on both sides of the conflict. So yeah, it, it's such a tricky one for, for politicians to to handle. And additionally, I suppose it's a, a, a subject that where very rarely is remaining silent and choosing only to listen a very powerful political tool, especially in the way we do politics now. But this might be one of them. So, yeah. Some people did not decide to remain silent and listen. Um, There's extraordinary comments and parts of the the hard left. Navarra Media's Reefka Brown called it a day of celebration for supporters of democracy and human rights worldwide. A tweet that at the time of recording still remains up, um, Am I allowed to say on this podcast, fuck those people? Yeah, Because fuck those people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I thought there was something quite inhuman about that. You know, even if you were extremely, extremely anti-Israeli, you must be able to see this was not a day of celebration and it was going to go horribly wrong. Were you shocked by, you know, by those kind of reactions that there couldn't even be, even people very sympathetic to Palestine, that, that, that they're unable to acknowledge that massacres are bad? Um, it was quite a startling sentiment to see. And the fact that it wasn't removed was surprising to me. For anyone who perhaps saw that and didn't feel initial shock and revulsion, I want to recommend a book, actually. I'm not an expert in any way on this this conflict, but I've read a book called The Lemon Tree by the US journalist Sandy Tolon, and it's the most exceptional piece of journalism about the history of the conflict that would really put into context... Um, any sympathy that you might have felt for that that message when mm. you saw it. So, if I I just want to recommend that. Um, I, I I want to say I'm not an expert in this, um, but but I am from that left wing of the party, and I am someone who has, you know, historically been extremely sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinians, especially in the Gaza Strip. But I find the argument on the day this is going on that, you know, if you if you make people desperate, then what? I mean, then what becomes inevitable is that they go and murder 260 people at a rave. Mm. Well, I mean, th- I mean, that is a fucking grotesque well, it just thing like a com- to be it's saying. It's like a complete moral failure right. because then, but the, but the, because then that same logic can be applied backwards, and you go, well, if we've experienced this, then why can't we just carpet bomb people? And it's like you can't be, start and will on that. be applied yeah. backwards, but, right? But also, who gets murdered at a rave? Who gets murdered at a rave? Are not that like, the right wing hawks? You're literally murdering is Israel's liberal left and future of the liberal left, and including You're- many many sort of foreign nationals. Also, among the murder victims, apparently, with some um, Palestinian. Israelis. And, it's and not what, an attack on an IDF base. Not and, that I would defend no, that. And but what you're, it's not and what you're doing that. more broadly is you're conflating mm-hmm. Hamas's actions here with the general plight of the Palestinians. When this is a moment to say, actually, these people don't represent the real interest of Palestinian people. This is the time yeah. to actually separate those two and say, we support Palestine but we want nothing to do with this. And I think this is the bit that, that when we talk about interpretation and politics having to be done in five-second video snaps for, for Twitter, that, that they find so difficult to spell out. You can't just say, this is Palestine, um, and this is what Palestine believes and wants. I watched some of those interviews live, by the way. They made me so angry. I, I actually had to rewind to make sure that... that so this man turned up and said, I think this is great. Look, the, Literally, I think it's great. 
There, there are people who make those kind of points on the other side. There are mm. right-wing Amer- American hawks. There are right-wing Israeli Zionist hawks who <laughs> will make the argument that they are delighted when when uh, when, when, when civilians are massacred. It doesn't happen often. These are, these are fringe people who are rightly ostracized from normal political discourse. If that's what you want to be on the other side, I mean, you go for it, you know. But I just feel like there should be more red lines. I think some mm. of the people should be ostracized perhaps more than they are. Um, Hugo, it seems that when Israel commits atrocities, anti-Semitism spikes. And, and yeah. we see that when Israel is the victim of atrocities, anti-Semitism also spikes. Now, you've said that this has affected sort of everyone in the Jewish community, whatever their politics or relationship with Israel, there's some connection. And actually, you pointed out that Hamza Youssef, uh, the SP leader, has, has yeah. in-laws in Gaza. So it's not just Jewish people that have some sort of connection to Israel. I mean, it, it, something like this instantly becomes a traumatic event for yeah, I mean, look, Britain, right? look, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a secular Jew. I, I, I grew up in an Orthodox community. My wife is not Jewish. My kids, my kids are not Jewish. I'm not practicing Jewish. I have a huge number of, uh, of cousins in this country and in other countries and in Israel. Some of whom who have moved there in my lifetime. Some of whom wound up there when the ancestors of mine that fled from, from. Central Europe during the war for other reasons went there instead. And so there are WhatsApp groups that exist on which I have cousins across the world in Israel, elsewhere, whatever. They have been um, humming the last few days as everybody wants to check on this cousin, that cousin, this nephew, that niece, this kid there on a gap year, this person who's on a kibbutz, who knows what's happened to this person. You know, this, this is all going on everywhere. Meanwhile, in this country, the experience of my uh, a lot of my cousins who are who are still Orthodox Jews, most of whom now live in the the, the furthest, deepest, darkest reaches of North London. Um, so this this attack happened on a Saturday morning. Um, they're Orthodox Jews. They're in synagogue. They don't know. Uh, the rabbi gets word and tells them about it. Uh, they hear about it. Word spreads around. Everybody's frightened. The next day, Sunday, it's Simchat Torah. It's another Jewish Jewish celebration. So nobody's checking the news. It's only really last night that they start coming to terms with the magnitude of what's happening. The same people, uh, they have small kids going to schools in North London that now have armed guards outside them. They are seeing uh, shops smashed up in their in their communities. And again, this is not when Israel has behaved outrageously. This is when Israel itself has been attacked. There is no way that if you're in that community, you get away from a sense of being hated. You know, that is that is how they feel. You can understand how they feel it. Uh, that is a problem for us. Socially, that is a problem for us. I've seen a lot of people been talking about you know, the the right, the Gaza's right to fight for liberation, Israel's right to defend itself. What is it, you know, what you are sort of allowed to do. But I wonder whether, like, talking about consequences, I'm not saying that they don't have the right in broad, but not to do the specific things, but, you know, the right to self-defense or liberation. But it seems the consequences are obviously appalling. And the peace process was already in a, you know, pretty flatlining before the crisis. Can you see any way forward for the region to even talk about, I saw Yanis Varoufakis tweeted that the most realistic solution was a one-state solution. And to sort of say that now, and, and, and that would be wonderful, if, but, but I mean, what is realistic at this stage? Look, I mean, a great many Israelis, both religious and otherwise on the right and left, the reason why they oppose a one-state solution is because they believe that a large number of Palestinians would slaughter them if they could. Most of the time, I go through my life regarding that sentiment as ridiculous. Uh, right now, I still think that sentiment, a large number of Palestinians, is wrong. 
but come on, you know, you look, you look at what happens when people cross the borders. You're going to say you open the border and say, but you've got to vote and everyone's going to live with the security. Whatever the reasons, you're going to say people live with the security they have now. Of course not. The only positive I can see, and this isn't a positive from this situation at all, but the only positive picture I can see for the region is, again, there is a degree of normalization happening within the West Bank. And again, this is a Hamas-Fatah split. Of course, Hamas is largely funded by Iran, whereas in the West Bank, Fatah is largely funded by uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. These are countries that are making an accommodation with Israel. Something very dip- different could could happen in, the, in, 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 in that part of the country, but I wouldn't like to bet on it. Alex, in the short term, what can other countries do? The, the main suggestion I've seen so far is that Egypt, you know, could open the Gaza border and allow people to escape, um, you know, the, the Israeli reprisals. Can, there's, there's always a sense of just like, well, the world must act. What, what can be done right now? I mean, look, the United States moving military assets into the area, including a, an aircraft carrier, is something that is being done, right? Because it serves as a sort of proactive warning to other players in the region to say, don't get involved, right? And it was really notable to me that something happened along the north border and uh, Hezbollah rushed to say it wasn't us, mm-hmm. when ordinarily they would be claiming stuff that wasn't them, actually. Um, and this seems to me to, to mean that for now, Hamas has been left alone to dangle, um, which is, I think, quite encouraging. And we are talking about a very different Middle East from 1973, for instance, in that Israel now has quite regularized relationships with places like Bahrain and um, Egypt and and Jordan, and is actually quite close to the United Arab Emirates, is on on the brink of finding an accommodation with Saudi Arabia. So we're not in the same everyone against Israel environment that that had been the, the reality for so many decades. Beyond that, I think it, it just has to be the constant reminder and pressure to be proportionate. Hugo says there is a possibility of a of a unity sort of war cabinet. That that may be the case. The the first advance of of an opposition leader has been rebuffed so far. So, but maybe that will change. Because um, that but, might neuter the more sort of genocidal. Voices oh, on the very far right. I think, I mean, I think sadly... Politically I think, I, become less reliable on them? Or is that naive? No, I think sadly more likely legitimise. Okay. Um, yeah, legitimise to associate with that. I mean, Israel's not going to be in a space where there is appetite for moderation. That's simply not going to happen. Gaza is going to be horrific for a few weeks. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the world calling for moderation mm. is out of place. and And often someone might fail to listen, but still hears um, what you're saying. And I think that still has a value in the current context. Hannah, finally, this is the first major crisis that we've witnessed since Elon Musk took over Twitter. And it is just lousy with disinformation, stuff from old conflicts being posted as if it's new, computer games. (laughs) So this used to be, until very recently, an invaluable platform for breaking news, of finding out what is going on. Um, uh, even I think Musk personally recommended an account, mm. which is just 
absolutely foul and full of lies and uh, extremely biased. Um, and then had to go, hang on there, guys. And it's like, well, if you didn't hate, if you didn't hate the entire mainstream media, then perhaps you wouldn't have this problem. So, so is this platform for breaking news now pretty much broken? I, I mean, on a personal level, it's. I think it's. This is the first major, very rapidly breaking and developing news event that I very quickly deferred to the BBC for. So mm. that suggests to me, yes. Yeah, worrying really that if anyone is still relying on it for accurate news um, coverage of a breaking scenario, we know it isn't serving them. This is it. As you said, it's all about this distrust of the MSM, the dreadful MSM and the awful things we do, like neat, careful explainers of long-standing complex conflicts yeah. <laughs> that people find difficult to understand. Uh, I, I don't know what to say other than I do think that there is no alternative still. So we can't point people to threads and say, look over here, it's much better because it's not doing the job yet. What do all these fucking accounts share in common? They're paid up blue, blue ticks. ticks. Oh, that's the thing. Exactly. That's, that's the, the bottom line. It's not that Musk see. allows disinformation. It's yep. that he incentivizes it. Yeah. I mean, so, so what happens now if I see a blue tick, I check. Is it someone that's a blue tick because they've got over a million followers? If not, I tend to automatically disregard oh, yeah. what they say. Lock them all. There is something that's, I mean, it's not quite connected to, to Musk and Twitter, but there's something that's very different that's happened about the the information war in this conflict to what normally happens in conflicts, particularly between Israel and Palestinians. Normally what happens when there is an atrocity, it is recorded and broadcast by the other side. What happened this time was Hamas committed atrocities and Hamas broadcasted those, those atrocities itself. But that's something quite new in terms of, uh, in terms of geopolitical terror generally. We've reached the end of the show, uh, so it's time for some much-needed escape routes. Um, Hannah, you start us off. Okay, so I've only just started reading it, um, so it's an early recommendation, but I'm reading Free by Lee Yeep, um, which is about growing up during the last days of communism in Albania. And it reminds me quite a lot, if any of you have read it, listeners, of Anna Funder's Stasiland, in that it really captures something really sort of personal and emotional about what makes political history real. Um, so no spoilers, even though we all know how the Soviet Union is. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, yeah, it's fantastic writing and I just highly recommend it. I did an interview with Leah Upi on Oh, thank you for announcing that correctly. You can, you can amend. <laughs> you can uh, amend on the bunker two years ago when the book came out. And I would, I would highly recommend that, Hannah, as a sort of companion piece to the book. Brilliant. Thank you, Alex. I will go back and listen. Alex? Um, the new and final... Season of Ghosts is out. Um, I absolutely love everything about that um, series. It, it, it's got the best heart, I think, of anything I've watched in a long time. I have to pace myself, otherwise I will run out too soon. So I've only seen two episodes so far, and they are splendid, and I highly recommend it. It's an iPlayer. Hugo? Uh, I've surprised myself, but the Beckham documentary on Netflix, who knew I was that guy? Um, it's it's just fantastic. It's made by uh, Fisher Stevens, uh, better known in succession as Hugo, mm. but who's also an Oscar-winning director. And it's, um, I've found myself watching four hours of football. I've never watched four hours of football in my life. But it's just, it's really fascinating in terms of what it, mostly 
both in terms of his sort of role in, in celebrity and how he was treated, but also just in terms of his character and how the football involved, uh, evolved. I, I, I can't recommend it enough. How about you? Um, I, I don't think I'm trying to pioneer, which is the cross-genre binge, uh-huh. where you just immerse, and genres are you immerse yourself in a real-life story, versions of a real-life story. So a while ago, I did that with the Theranos story. I listened to uh, the podcast, The Dropout, watched the TV show, The Dropout, and read the book Bad Blood. And so I was like, I could have like sat an exam on it. <laughs> and I've, I've basically done this with the OxyContin sort of scandal and the opioid epidemic that I read Patrick Redden Keefe's uh, Empire of Pain quite recently. Then I watched the documentary about Nan Golden, who was addicted to OxyContin and sort of led the campaign to remove the Sackler name for art galleries. That's all the beauty in the bloodshed, which um, was an Oscar-nominated documentary. And then watched Dope Sick, the, I think, Disney Plus series, which overlaps with it in interesting ways, but is sort of largely takes place earlier on and is, is, is largely focused in Appalachia, mm. which is one of the hardest hit areas. And I kind of recommend that as an approach to sort of saturate yourself in nonfiction and fictionalized versions of an event because you notice all the little overlaps and you notice that no, nothing, no story can cover everything. But if you sort of mass them together, you have this almost panoramic view. So, Dorian, I love your strategy, but um, I have to come back to this when I'm not the parent of two children under six. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. It's a little time consuming. And that is the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you so much to Alex Andreu. My pleasure. Hannah Fern. Thank you. And our guest, Hugo Rifkind. Pleasure. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. Thanks for listening. and We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Hannah Fern, Alexandre and Hugo Rifkin. Additional reporting from Jacob Jarvis and Chris Jones. The producers, Podmasters Group Editor Andrew Harrison. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Thank you.